0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy, I'm Amy mcphee Olabest, and I cannot believe that we have come to the end of season three. Last year, at the beginning of the season, I shared a quote by Chilean writer and activist Isabel Allende, and I'm going to read it again now. She said, quote, I have lived enough to see great changes in the situation of women. Little by little, women are chipping away at the patriarchy. The fact that we have not been able to replace it yet doesn't mean we have failed. It means that the job is monumental, but it's not impossible. I believe it will happen, but only if women are educated, informed, connected, and active." End quote. I have to say that as I read and researched this season, I became massively more educated and more informed. I also became more connected as I had the incredible privilege of talking with women from around the world. And I hope that you listeners felt that connection too through listening to our conversations. And wow, there were a lot of opportunities to become more active this year as so many women shared initiatives that are going on in their communities and their countries, and they gave us action items to get involved. So as is our tradition, we're going to wrap up this year with a summary of the whole season, sharing brief takeaways from each episode. And I'm so excited to have this conversation today with one of the guests from season three, the amazing Sarah Lopez. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, I'm so happy to be back.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for coming back. I so enjoyed your episode and learned so much from you, Sarah, about the Dominican Republic. And we discussed uh, Julia Alvarez's book, In the Time of the Butterflies. Your episode just blew me away. So I'm really excited to hear what you think of each of these episodes. Um, I've been reflecting about how you and I have different points of view based on our age and where we grew up and our race and our just a lot of different things that It's always so interesting to hear like we both listened to or read the same thing, but then we'll think, oh, that struck me this way and it struck me this other way. And so I'm just super excited to have this conversation. So let's dive right in. Perfect. I'm going to start, I guess, with the first episode and then I'll just cue you and tee you up and you can just tell me everything you, you think about each of these episodes and we'll try to keep our comments brief so we can get through all of them. The very first episode was on the book From Outrage to Courage by Anne Firth-Murray. She's one of my professors during my master's degree at Stanford. For me, one of the big takeaways from that episode was actually a theme for the entire season. I just remember her saying, women don't need to be told what they need, right? Especially she's talking about women in low, under-resourced countries, going in with an attitude of trying to fix them or tell them what they need is really patronizing. It causes harm in relationships. And she said, just show up and then listen because they are smart and they already know what they need. So that was my big takeaway. Sarah, what did you think? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think that theme shows up a lot throughout the rest of the podcast season where there are so many women who are coming from these backgrounds and from These nations, and they're like, you know, the very insidious thing about white feminism in particular is how patronizing it can be, and how you're told time and time again from someone who thinks they understand you but doesn't really because they don't understand your cultural background and telling you you need to fix these and these things. And it's something that's so pervasive, I think, and something that's so hard, especially in later episodes when we hear like pushback on the word feminism. So super important, like, foundation episode for the season.
0: I agree. It's something I just, it was really, like you said, just drilled over and over and over again. It came up everywhere in every region of the world. Super, super grateful for that. Okay. Well, now, you know what? Maybe I'll just ask you what you think. Maybe I'll pipe up a little bit, but I would mostly like to hear what you think of these episodes. So let's go on to the second one, which was Patriarchy and Gender in Africa with Veronica Finn
1: Yeah. I mean, first I thought Veronica was such an incredible speaker and had lived such an incredible life, I think, and so much like resiliency. And that's another theme that I feel like has come up throughout the history of patriarchy, but for women in general is the amount of resiliency that you need in order to survive and to like tell these stories. You know, the only reason she's here is because her mom was resilient, right? And because the mom of her mom was resilient And that she's continuing this kind of legacy of resiliency was just so mind blowing to me. Like for a lot of these women who came and, you know, these intellectuals, really these academics who came and spoke about their lives. I just kept thinking like, I have no idea what I would even do. Like, would I even survive? Would I even make it? I'm not sure. And so that episode was super enlightening to me also because, you know, themes of, I come from a country that had a lot of African slavery and a lot of African culture imbued into the nation. And so you see those ideas of patriarchy in Africa come to the other nations due to like the transatlantic slave trade, like things like women in the home versus men outside, the switch between agriculture, hunter gathering ideas, and domestication, right? In quotation marks. So just the resilience was. A huge part for me and I was like oh my god like (laughs) there's no way I would have been able to do half of what she did in my lifetime
0: I agree Uh, remembering how she was I think 15 years old when she had to be separated from her family living on her own and then the image I have of her receiving her doctorate like she was a refugee from a war and then getting her doctorate with her baby sitting on her lap as they're putting her doctoral like hood like It makes me cry just thinking about it. She's amazing. Okay, next episode was about the women's mass action for peace in Liberia. And that was the one where my reading partner got sick and couldn't do it. So I ended up doing the whole thing, just reading the quotes and going along. But what did you think of that one?
1: Yeah, so this one was, first of all, I was so mad and kind of sad that I hadn't heard about it ever, (laughs) like in any of my time, like, you know, and I I went to a university that kind of prides itself on its diverse courses. And I had not once heard about this mass movement of women. Yep. And I think that's something that was so interesting to me was the use of their designated roles, like the roles imposed onto women and how they used that as a weapon against the men who were basically like ignoring all their calls for action, all their calls for peace. You know, it's like one thing that really struck me is when she, when the book mentioned the use of the naked female body, right? And how she threatened to strip and she was like, I'll take off my clothes right here. And that was kind of like a threat. And it's, it's not a threat that women imposed on themselves. It wasn't that, oh, I'm so powerful in my nakedness. It was something that men out of fear or sort of anxiety of, the female body imposed on them that she then used and was like well unless you're gonna do something i'm going to do something that is so disgraceful to you that is disgraceful to you because you made it disgraceful you know mm-hmm. not because she thought her naked body was something to be ashamed of
0: yeah what a great point
1: point. and that just like over and over in my head every time i thought about that episode i was like that's so interesting
0: yeah totally Okay, the next one was The Invention of Women, and I talked about this book with Olutumen Kukoyi. What did you think of that one?
1: Yeah, it's it was one theme that I kept asking myself once I heard the episode. there's brought up this idea of universal womanhood and, like, universal girlhood. So I read Simone de Beauvoir um, in one of my classes, and I remember thinking, like, wow, you know, she really sees it, like, she sees womanhood as it is. And then I actually like had to call into question, like how deeply do I resonate with the title woman that's kind of been enforced on me and not in like a weird way. Like I, you know, I identify with womanhood, I identify with girlhood in like very big ways, you know, I identify with the ways I've been socialized to be a woman, right? But when I think about myself as a person, the first thing is not my gender or like me being a woman, you know, the first thing I think about is like, oh, I like music, and I speak Spanish, and I love my family. And you know, there are relational aspects of womanhood, like I think of myself as a sister as a daughter, but woman isn't wouldn't be like the first five traits that I would think about for myself. (laughs) Um, And I thought that was so interesting, of this idea of womanhood. And that idea of universal womanhood is another form of like, telling people from other nations what they need to be doing. Like, this is what a woman is, so this is what you should be doing. And we see that come up in almost every other nation um, and region that this season explores. And it was just so key to question, you know, the very foundational aspect of what is woman? You know, who is woman? Is it universal? Does it matter? Like, does it need to be for, you know, global feminism to be a thing for us to dismantle global patriarchy. Does it does it need to be universal?
0: Yeah. Yeah. As you're talking, it makes me think of how in Beauvoir too, right? She illuminates how men have set gender, like male maleness as the standard. Like they're the ones determining what it means to be a human and they claim universality for humanity as like a the generic masculine. And then white People do that, like you're saying, like white women will say like, well, we're claiming us- universality for the term woman based on our experience and anything else is a deviation from that. Like ours is the standard. Yours is different. Yeah, that, it, that book also blew my mind where I was like, whoa, the foundations are different. Like it was a real eye opener for me, too. And then the next one was also from the African continent. This was Daughters of Onawa which was by Mercy Amba Oduyoye that I talked about with my friend Chanel. What did you think of that episode?
1: Yeah, I thought it was, as someone with a religious background, was so eye-opening to me, largely because Mercy was a religious woman, right? And a Christian woman. And for her to be so open to other ideas of divinity and I guess like sacred feminineness, It's not something that you see in the way Christianity is practiced in a lot of ways. And so that was super eye opening to me was that for her to empower other women was also for her to have this sense of openness with her own belief system and with others and not seeing them as so separate, which I loved and thoroughly enjoyed, especially someone who no longer practices my faith. Mm-hmm. anymore so it was just so interesting to me
0: <laughs> yeah I enjoyed so much the variety on this season of women who have left faith practices and then those who say no I don't have to leave I'm I'm gonna criticize the patriarchy within it but I'm staying and that there's there are those options available to people I, I really appreciate that and think it's powerful okay next one was we should all be feminist this is an iconic one by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. What did you think of this episode?
1: Yeah, so I thought that episode was insightful. Honestly, I haven't read the book and I really need to. It's been on my bookshelf for forever. And it was so interesting to me because it reminded me of when I was a teenager and when I first sort of encountered feminism. And it was this very like surface level (laughs) feminist idea that, you know, only like really 13 year olds can come up with because, you have so much anger at yeah. you know, how much life you've lived being subjugated to something that you didn't ask for. And first sort of labeling myself as a feminist and how I truly didn't understand it. And also how it created alienation between me and a lot of my guy friends like mm-hmm. um, she experienced. So it was just so, I guess sort of validating to me first that um, she experienced that. And then also hearing from your guest who co-created Black Menaces, um, hearing her talk about her campus experiences and her experiences with her male friends, it just was so like, just validating to like, you know, I've had that conversation. I've yelled at my brothers before being like, well, I'm a feminist. So, you know, blah, 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 because they're so eager to talk down on this concept. And so, yeah, I loved that episode. I thought it was great.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Okay, sticking with the theme and kind of the one from before it when we were talking about Christianity and especially in an African context, Dr. Christina Cleveland wrote the book God is a Black Woman, so not in an African context, but in an African-American context. And this book kind of blew my mind. What did you think of this episode? (sighs)
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. If there's one book that anyone needs to read in this season, it is this book. It, I really didn't think about how deeply, um, and the author calls him white male God in like yep. one word, you know, how deeply white male God pervades so much of what we do and so much of American culture. And it reminded me of, a conversation that I've been seeing with a lot of black spiritual people that I follow on like social medias and things and this idea of how black people breathed divinity into God you know and they kind of had to because as slaves they were enforced in this religion and then they somehow made it their own religion and made it like a story of freedom and expression and then also there's you know, dominator culture patterns happening in there as well. Like, while yes, you know, Black people very much can resonate with the story of the Israelites who are freed from Pharaoh and are sort of sent on this quest, right? For Moses, there's still a white male god gaze that also puts Black women at the very bottom of that liberation story, right? And so it's these two ideas of liberation and also oppression that are happening at the same time. And oh my gosh, it was so interesting. I was like listening to it on my way to work, and I was like, oh my God, like, yes, this is exactly it. Like, that's what we should be talking about, you know, is not only, you know, question, like, you know, we questioned womanhood and what is woman, and also questioning, you know, what is God? Because everyone has this idea of a God. And, you know, what is God? What is divinity? What does it mean to see it as yourself? Right? and what does it mean to not see it as yourself because it's also white women having to contend with like this is a black female god not a white one and what does that mean and how does that make me feel and maybe you know contending with some of those pushbacks you know your mind that wants to say no that's not true and why Totally. so good
0: (laughs) so good so good Okay, how about How We Fight for Our Lives by Saeed Jones? And I talked about this one with my friend Stacy Harkey. So
1: I'll just ask you, what did you think about that episode, Amy?
0: Yeah, this one was a big one for me. So my friend Stacy in the episode just happened to say that when he was – so he was in the closet for a long time because he's Mormon and was gay and didn't come out, and he said – Just that when you're queer and you're in the closet, you're constantly sensing, like putting out feelers, like am I safe with this person? Am I safe with this person? And he said that you have to, like in order to be an ally for a queer friend, you have to state your allyship really clearly and multiple times. It wasn't enough to just not be a bigot. It wasn't enough just to like not say like homophobic things. He had to hear a person say like, I just went to my cousin's wedding. He married a man. It was awesome. I am so grateful that the world is changing or whatever. like you have to be very clear. And um, this is just something I've been thinking about a lot lately is how, especially as a parent and especially in a conservative religion, if there are you know adults listening to this who teach Sunday school or they, I mean anybody who has like kids around them, honestly, like nieces and nephews, You don't know. We live in such a heteronormative world. You do not know if the kid in front of you that you're talking to or speaking who's in earshot of what you're saying is straight or not. And they will take those, whatever you say goes like an arrow into those little hearts and those little minds. And so just knowing, like make your allyship known, make your love known because you don't know who is closeted around you. That was my big takeaway from that. So the next book is a shift. We had just done, I think, Black History Month, and then we shifted to the Islamic world. And the first book that we discussed was called Gendered Morality, Classical Islamic Ethics. Um, and then it's a big, long title, but it's by Zara Ayubi. What did you take away from that one?
1: Honestly, as someone who's deeply interested in the Abrahamic religions, like I was going to double major in religion just so I could have like a you know and before school I was gonna go to seminary school because I was so fascinated by my religion and by others and it was so interesting to hear about Islam in a way that in popular media it is not spoken about Mm -hmm. you know Um, it's very much seen as this oppressive force for women and you know Mm -hmm. Christianity is very much Wield in a similar way um, because you know all these religions have the opportunity to be used as weapons and also to be used as like ways to heal and ways to help people right um and so to hear islam be spoken about one so candidly and two with women at the forefront of it which i would have never thought of i feel like a lot of the i guess centering of women is done retroactively at least for the way i was taught about christianity it's done super retroactively you know like you think about esther and maybe mary magdalene maybe she won't even make the cut sometimes and these are all retroactive sort of heralding of feminist women in that in christianity and to hear islam be spoken about with women at the forefront and the ideas of egalitarianism and how that continues to you know with what's happening all around the world and especially with the assault that so many muslim brothers and sisters are under hearing about their religion in such a frank and i guess with no agenda underneath it there wasn't an agenda of like racism or patriarchy it was just this is what my religion is um and this is how it is acted and lived and practiced was so refreshing to me. Yeah. And so useful.
0: Me too. And my takeaway from all of these ones um, on works from the Islamic world was just, I think my biggest thing for listeners is like, if you're curious, if you're going to have an opinion about Islam, ask a Muslim. Like Zara Ayubi is a brilliant mm-hmm. intellectual and she's also a practicing Muslim. And so, like you said, to center Women, because she that's her lived experience. So I really thought that was really important too. And there were so many in this section, I learned that from so many women. So the next one was Women Rising in and Beyond the Arab Spring. And this is the episode that I did with your friend Leia. Yeah. So, yeah, what did you take away from that one?
1: Yeah, honestly, it was one incredible to hear one of my very dear friends sort of just talk about the things she's passionate about. I think for me, it was such a big deal. We never really, it's going to sound strange because we study the same thing and live together for like years, but we never really get to talk to each other or about each other or hear each other talk in such an intellectual level mm. and to really think about our intellectual pursuits because in the back of our minds, we sort of just like, you know, I know that she's into that and whatever, right? And we never really get the opportunity to hear it. So to hear her talk about, her background and the fact that she didn't feel connected to Algeria and how that was one of the reasons she did her academics the way that she did was super insightful. And then also to hear about the many women that once again, continue to use tropes imposed upon them as a weapon to fight back. I keep thinking about the brides and that they wore wedding dresses and what a powerful image that is, right? And just struck me <laughs> so mm-hmm. much. And I just, I think about it all the time.
0: Yeah. Fabulous. Okay, the next one was Faith and Feminism in
1: Pakistan
0: with Afia Zia. What about that one? Yeah.
1: This one was so interesting, especially, I mean, I'm going to say that for all of them. <laughs> they were all so interesting. Everyone should listen to the whole season. I thought it was honestly so impactful to hear about the generational divide I don't Mm. think that's something that we talk about very often um, especially in feminist spaces and like for example for you and I like there's definitely a generational divide in how we speak about feminism in even just the context of American culture and for us in particular Christianity and Christian culture right Mm -hmm. I was thinking a lot about trauma responses throughout this also and how it's such a trauma response for the younger generation to not want to attack Islam in any capacity. Mm. Um, And it's because they've grown up with, you know, the aftermath of 9-11 and the rise in Islamophobia and global Islamophobia, international attacks of their brothers and fathers and grandfathers and uncles and best friends, right? And for them to feel that they can't, criticize something because they are adding on to that is such a hard thing to balance and it like it is a trauma response you don't want to attack that because you know what it's like to be seen as like a monster or a terrorist which is how so many people view especially Muslim men throughout the world and Arab men in general even if they're not practicing Islam right so that was so it was something I had never thought about and it made so much sense as soon as she said it Mhm. Yeah, super amazing.
0: Yeah. I mean, that reminds me again these it comes up constantly, but from that very first episode is like if if you're an ally who wants to show up and really help someone where you're in a space that isn't your native space, right? Showing up and then criticizing these women's like you just said, like me to show up and be like, "Hey, I'm going to help you." And then I proceed to criticize their dad and their brother and their grandpa. Like, I don't know that I don't know anything about their family. I don't have the right to do that. And of course, what are they going to do? Feel super defensive and attack. That's what I would feel if someone came in and did that to me. And so just remembering, like, show up and just be humble and listen And what I keep hearing women say, and what I kept hearing women say all season, is if you want to help us, then your job is to break down colonialism, imperialism, and racism because that's the stuff that is making our life hard. We can handle our own families. We can handle the men in our lives. You need to work on the racism. I was like, yes, message received, like, over and over. I, yeah. Yeah felt super super humbled by that message. And speaking of that, we'll go on to women in Afghanistan and this is a really hard one, right? Because if anybody ever wants to use like the the, you know, epitome example of patriarchy, we say Afghanistan, we say the Taliban. And that's true, right? And that the the guest on this episode did talk about the terrible problems of sexism, but it is intertwined with western interference that created some of the problems that we see now anyway we could go on and on and i'll zip it but what did you think sarah
1: yeah i thought honestly positioning them together like pakistan and afghanistan Mm -hmm. like right after each other um was so important i think and helpful because it's there's no easy answer right to patriarchy and to feminism it's very much yes and and also consider this opposing alternative because humans are complicated. And I think one of the things that struck me was I didn't know that Pakistan and Afghanistan had had like conflict with each other. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that, you know, the Taliban was originally a Pakistani militant group. I didn't know that. Um, And to think about the ways that nations that are neighbors and share very similar cultures can harm each other was super interesting to me and it was also you know kind of like a check for me like how much do you really know how much do you think you know and maybe it's time for you to hush up and listen to people because like you said like i would have mentioned the taliban as like you know this is you know patriarchy in religion 1000 percent and i'm not so quick to call out you know patriarchy in my own religion or in my own home Um, Mm -hmm. but i'm so quick to point the finger at somebody else and it's like how can you hurt me and also help me right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. just thinking about a lot of that especially in regards to how we've been conditioned as americans to think about women in the middle east and islam in general um Mm -hmm. yeah
0: yep very humbling Yeah, wow, did I learn a lot from that episode. (laughs) Holy cow, I knew nothing. I knew like one stereotype and that was it. Okay, the next one was, oh boy. So this one was Palestinian women's activism with Isla Jad. What was the takeaway for you, Sarah? This one is still very, very tender, isn't it?
1: Yeah, this one's very raw for me, especially because I don't know if viewers know this, but I work in federal government now. And what that means is I work for a government that is intent on continuing a genocide in that region and it kills women and it kills children and it kills men in huge capacities and it's continuing to do so. And so when I was listening to this and i had revisited it, I think like two weeks ago as everything was happening and it struck me because right now there are women at the forefront who are also recording and documenting what's happening to them. Right. And that's women. And I keep thinking about, you know, I was watching somebody break down like the dress that women are wearing and there's this type of covering that women will wear. It's usually made out of Jersey um, and they'll wear it to sleep to maintain modesty and, you know, covers every part of their body and all Palestinian women are wearing that who choose to, cover themselves up at all times of day, right? Because God forbid their corpses get removed and there's some part of their body showing, right? And I just kept thinking about how women have to contend with their children, their own modesty and religious beliefs, and in their death, continue to think about those things, right? They're constantly looking to the future of like, well, when I die, I wanna make sure that I'm still within my integrity right? I don't know. It was just super raw for me to listen to that and to listen to it again while everything's happening to our Palestinian siblings.
0: Yeah. I would say if listeners haven't listened to that one, go back and listen now because it, it obviously was recorded and aired before October 7th and a lot has changed since then, but the message is all the more relevant. So the next book was The Patriarchs, The Origins of Inequality by Angela Siney. What did you think of this
1: one? Oh my gosh. I thought it was deeply, honestly, it made me realize, and I know this, like in my brain, I'm what people would call a constructivist, which is this idea in international relations and like generally political science. You sort of adhere to the fact that everything is a man-made construction, right? And so putting a lot of power and agency in people's perspectives and how we build social norms. And like the examples, like if we all collectively decided that money wasn't important, it would not be right. It's not Mm -hmm. like its Mm -hmm. own autonomous thing. It's something that's attached to like social norms. And what I was thinking while I was listening to that was how man-made patriarchy is. I know Mm -hmm. that that sounds so, you know, like so simple, I was going to say stupid, but I don't no, think that's true. No, it's
0: profound. Yeah, yeah.
1: And just it hit me over the head. And it, it gave me a little bit of hope. Because if it's man-made, it means it can also be man-unmade, right? Yep. And man man can make things and man can take them away, right? It's yep. it's kind of reminds me of that Bible verse, you know, the Lord gives and he taketh, right? And mm-hmm. man gives and taketh, right? So man creates and also destroys and creates something else. Yep. And that was... Really, what stuck with me and something that I was thinking about from that episode until the very end of the season was like, God, this is all just man made stuff, and how stupid, and how also deeply, deeply terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and hopeful.
0: Yes, it is. It is deeply terrifying and hopeful. That's a quote from Gerda Lerner that I love that because it is human constructed, it can also be deconstructed. So, yes, exactly. Okay, so the next episode was called New Jewish Feminism, Probing the Past, Forging the Future. And this one also, I highly recommend to listeners with all the anti-Semitism that's also going on in the world, especially right now, that has kind of come to the surface with this conflict. I was incredibly inspired by Elise Goldstein, Rabbi Goldstein, on this episode. What did you think, Sarah?
1: Absolutely. I thought it was honestly like so interesting hearing her experiences especially because it was the 70s and 80s and we think about that as like a very kind of modern-ish time right like it's not all the way there but it's there right and for rabbis to not like for women rabbis to not even exist at that time hmm. it was insane And rabbi goldstein talks about this you know like there were a few of them but they were kind of mythological creatures right like they weren't real is so interesting and so deeply we've come a long way and also we should be giving roses to these women right to muslim women and to jewish women who have been at the forefront of feminism for a long time Mm. and how deeply inspiring it is and how to not look at one faith as one thing right I think that's what we're learning. It's not just one thing. Nothing is one thing, right? There is no universality. That's kind of fake, right? Because it takes away the nuance and it takes away the depth of human experience. So that's what I was thinking about a lot when she was talking.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she was phenomenal. I also think of you mentioned resiliency earlier and I thought of She has become a hero to me because she just was one of those people that just knows who she is. She knew who she was from the time she was little and was just like, no one else is doing it. Oh, well, I'm doing it anyway. You're telling me I can't? Well, I can. She just like knew. And that sense of self was so impressive to me. So the next episode, now we're shifting regions again and going to the subcontinent in Asia. And the next book was Roar Like a Goddess. And we kind of talked about some Hindu history with Acharya Shunya. What did you
1: think of that one? Oh my God. I know so little of everything. And I (laughs) need to know everything. That was like my main thought. (laughs) Especially as someone who, I'm someone who's very prone to belief. Um, And now that I don't have a very structured belief system, it's been super interesting to draw on different spiritual practices, right? And a lot of that for me has been chakra work and sort of very much thinking about the energies you know yin and yang which we talk about in a later episode right and it was so fascinating to me to think about how women are thought of in spaces that aren't abrahamic because that's sort of what my background is right Mm -hmm. Um, and thinking about goddesses and divine femininity and also how there isn't value attached to female rage right? Because one of the goddesses she speaks about, you know, roar like a goddess. And that roar isn't, there's no, um, my therapist calls it, there's no assigned judgment, right? Mm -hmm. Something I'm working on in therapy is not assigning judgment or value, right? It's not bad or good, it just is. Mm -hmm. And the way that um, she spoke about her own experience with spirituality and her ownness, it's that it just is. That's just what it is. Women are goddesses, that's just it. Like it's not good or bad, it just is. And that allows us to do so much because if something just is, then we're not assigning anything to it. Then we can just let it be, we can just let it breathe, we can just let it permeate people the way it needs to um, because it just is. And that's what I kept thinking about.
0: Yeah, I love it. I do feel too, like especially American Christian women in my experience, we do not have any healthy or productive place to channel anger. Like, we know what to do with joy and happiness. We can even handle sadness some, but not anger. There's no, like, we're not supposed to even feel it. And I appreciated having a goddess, like an icon that could represent what healthy anger looks like. So that was really, really helpful to have, like, a whole pantheon introduced to me that could house that part of human experience and and appropriate anger. Okay, so the next one, oh boy, The Trauma of Caste by Thanmori Rajan. And oh my goodness, I'll never forget this book I or
1: this episode. What about you, Sarah? Oh, oh my gosh, there's so much I don't know about the world. And as an international relations graduate and degree holder, that honestly frightens me, Right. Uh, it made me realize, you know, I really need to go back to school and, you know, think about some of these other things. And it made me think a lot about how people carry their own traumas with them, right? And how they enact them on other people because they can. It's one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of, you know, what's happening in Israel and Palestine is this trauma of a oppressed group of people and now enforcing that same kind of system and destruction on somebody else. Right. And that's the big question that we're talking, you know, we're asking about, you know, if like in the forties, this happened to you and lineages were destroyed. How are you doing that to someone else? And the same can be true about the caste system that was brought by a lot of Indian immigrants to the U S and how it works and careers and people facing discrimination where that doesn't really exist in the U.S., right? We're not a caste system, we're a racial system. So one drop rule, and that's it, right? But to have these levels of hierarchy is so interesting to entertain how people talk about trauma and enforce it on other people just because they had it happen to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, the next episode was The Trouble with Marriage, Feminists Confront Law and Violence in India by Srimati Basu.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about (laughs) a lot of how I view marriage and a lot of how marriage is both a way for women to gain power and a way for power to be taken from them, right? Because Mm. I was thinking about this in terms of like this idea that was something that your professor brought up in the first episode, sort of gender prioritization or gender favoring and how women especially daughters are not prioritized because of the way that this marriage is viewed is that they're a lost asset kind of they're a sunk cost right you know you're investing all your time and money into this woman your daughter right for her to be married off to a family and she never sees you again because that's her duty is to be to this family yeah so that's that's what I was thinking about was gender and how quickly you um, sort of lose value and also gain it in marriage.
0: OK, fabulous. OK, the next episode was on female genital cutting. So, yeah, very sobering episode. And for me, I have to say, too, like even some a behind the scenes little bit of information was even when we were posting online like in the week afterwards we even we selected an image and my guest maria taher came back and said could you not use that image please like first of all we got one of the groups wrong like we posted an image and she's like that's not the right social group in india and then the other one was like there was an image of a razor blade And she said that just is so sensationalizing. And it just was, again, like a humbling moment of like, boy, even after I read and after I talk to people, it's still like I know what it feels like for an outsider to come in and like present something that is sacred and close to me or very vulnerable to me in a way that I'm like, whoa, 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 that's like that's not how you pronounce it. Or like that's not what it feels like to be Mormon, for example, or that's not what it feels like to be whatever and to have her say like oh geez and to to keep making mistakes and trying again and she was really compassionate but just that fine line between like i care about this and i want to talk about it and use my platform to you know raise awareness of this without sensationalizing without othering without judging in a i mean i can judge a behavior to be harmful but without judging in a way that's
1: patronizing anyway what did you think sarah absolutely the idea of othering was a big thing for me Um, because when we hear about um, fmgc you think a lot about how could anyone do this and how you know how primitive right how savage right and those are words that we use to other people and to not think about like what's actually happening here what's the thought process behind this you know not to say that it's justified It's not, and she's very clear on it's not justified, right? But it's, once again, the idea of you don't get it. You don't understand why this would happen or or what would even be the origins of this, right? All you see it as is something that's other and something that's uncivilized, right? It's one of the things that our brains start to do, especially when we're conditioned to see things as either civilized or not. And that means, you know, human or not. Um, And so it was a lot of me thinking about how I react to different types of traditions and different types of people, right? Um, And trying, again, not to assign value, but sort of seeing the action as what it is and the people separate from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, next episode was on gender equity and reconciliation with Cynthia Bricks and Will Keepen and Haran Jiang. Yeah, what did you think, Sarah?
1: So much hope. I think mm-hmm. such a lost topic that we think about is reconciliation. It's something that I really appreciate. Like Dr. Cornel West talks a lot about the yeah. healings of reconciliation and how you need to heal in order to move on. You know, in order to solve racism, you need to heal from the fact that it happened. To solve patriarchy, you need to heal from the fact that it happened to and the fact that people who are close to you perpetrated it, right? Um, and without that healing, you just continue to create systems of oppression. Maybe other forms, maybe on some other characteristic, but you continue to oppress people and hurt people because, you know, hurt people hurt people, right? Yeah. And if you're not healed, you can't ever fully dismantle these structures. Yeah. So. I loved the work that they're doing. I was so interested. I was like, I wonder if I can get like a Jerry session wherever I am.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I've thought the same thing. I so, yeah, I think it would be, yeah, healing. It would be so, so powerful to listen to each other. And that includes women listening to men too about how they've been harmed by patriarchy or harmed by feminists, honestly. Like just listening to each other and then being able to move forward together. Okay, the next one was Buddhism after patriarchy. I read a gross and this was like a really historical episode and it's
1: fantastic book so cool um, I've been thinking about uh, Buddhism a lot as like a spiritual structure that I align with in a lot of ways and I met a an ordained like Buddhist she called herself a minister so she' was like I'm not a monk she was a woman you know it, it was amazing to hear her talk about her own experiences with Buddhism and honestly, I hadn't even recognized the history of patriarchal values in Buddhism. Like, I didn't know that. I, it's not something you would think about. And how quickly something can be turned into something it's not was mm-hmm. what I kept thinking about.
0: Um, yeah,
1: And how hurtful it must be, right, to be relegated to something as less than you are. That's one of the things she talked about was, you know, women will never be the highest of the high in terms mm-hmm. of terms of buddhism in general yeah so it was just yeah wow so much to think about
0: yeah i i remember too just that that part of buddhist history where the buddha himself his own aunt like begging please let me participate please let me be part of the movement and as enlightening uh, as buddhism is for it to still be a complete racial hierarchy where he's like he just had the power to say yes or no and said no for a long time. And it was, yeah, just really surprising and sad. (laughs) Okay, next was patriarchy in East Asia where we focused
1: on Taiwan. Yeah, I thought a lot about this episode. I'm thinking a lot about the way that women are so quickly like told what to do. once again these people coming into a culture they don't understand and assigning their own values to it and that happens in gender aspects as well and I keep thinking about like just the westernization of East Asia and I know that wasn't all that was talked about but how we talk about East Asia and how it's spoken about in terms of history and the westernizing seen as such a such a good thing but it also brings patriarchy and also confucianism being the sort of standard right in terms of belief systems and confucius placing this hierarchy on gender and on women and on sons and the need for that to even happen just the gendering of things like are we not just children are we not just parents like, mm-hmm. why is there this division, really? And that's what I was thinking about. It's like, man, who even came up with this? Like, who? <laughs> like, why does it even exist? It's just all I kept thinking about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That that was like a huge theme for me, too. And in the next episode, which maybe we'll just go to the next one, too, patriarchy throughout Chinese history, just seeing the huge influence of filial piety And children obeying parents, but also wrapped up in that is women obeying men all throughout Taiwan and China and really East Asia. So yeah, what did you think of that episode, that Chinese history? I guess it was two episodes, actually, part one and part two.
1: Yeah, yeah. I thought it was, honestly, just it continued to, in my mind, kind of illustrate the absurdity of how we gender the world, right? And how little I actually think about myself as gender and how little I think of other people in my life as a gender, right? I I know that sounds kind of weird, but like when I see you, Amy, I'm not seeing like woman, I'm seeing Amy, (laughs) you know, podcast host, mom of a really good friend of mine. And even mom to me isn't the same as like woman or as gendered. It's just Ah. you're a parent right? In my head. I don't know why it works that way, but in my head, they're separate. Um, And it just made it so absurd to me. Like, I don't, it made it so absurd of how we gender the world and how quick we are to assign value to people. I've been thinking a lot about assigning value and whether or not that's necessary, right? How essential is it for us to think about how we value people and why we value people the way they do? because women were seen as property back then, right? And why did we assign that value to them? Like, what yeah. was that, what was the need for it, really?
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay, the next one was Aching for Beauty, Foot Binding in China by Wang Ping. And this one also was like, the things I remember from this the book was fascinating also, but mostly Wong Ping. I was like, what in the world? <laughs> who who are you, you absolute like goddess of power? She was so amazing. Anyway, what did you think, Sarah?
1: Once again, it's the othering and civilization aspect that I think about, especially when it comes to things that I've never experienced, right? And things that kind of didn't happen in the U.S. or in historical culture, like footbinding. It took me so much to remove the idea of uncivilized versus civilized in my head Mm. and, you know, realizing that like, hey, me viewing foot binding as something that's uncivilized then condemns an entire nation of people to uncivilized and therefore not human and therefore so much easier to perpetuate violence against them, right? because they're not human. So what does it matter? And I kept thinking about the way that my mind kept running through that pattern. I was like, that's not okay. And I think I really need to address this. And I think it was just like, one of those alarm bells that I was like, one, how the heck did this woman go through this and talk about it and have family members who went through this and still talk about it and are resilient enough to talk about it, right? Because there's so many unspoken traumas that happen. And then also, ding, 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 hey, I have a very, like, American view of this in that I'm so quick to relegate someone to uncivilized or, you know, not human, and that's not okay.
0: Yeah. This came up with Orientalism across the um, the Islamic world and also in South Asia and also in East Asia, like the trope of Orientalism where, um, to agree with your point, Sarah, how the West has so many times in so many different contexts uh, used quote unquote women's oppression as an excuse to colonize and say like oh we need to save their women so therefore we need to go into where you know name the country and meanwhile back at home Like the one I think of so much is like in the 19th century where Britain was going into all of these countries saying like, oh, look at their poor women. We need to go save them. And meanwhile, back at home, they wouldn't allow women to vote, right? And they were, you know, saying like, oh, their veiled hair, their veiled heads. Well, back at home, women were covered also from their necks to their feet and down to their wrists. It was just different fabric in different places. And just the hypocrisy of that was insane anywhere, anyway, all over Asia. Absolutely. But okay, so the next one, we shift to Japan, and that was Scream from the Shadows. And that guest also, Setsu Shigematsu, we talked about Orientalism in Japan too, and that trope of the meek and oppressed and timid um, Asian woman. Yeah, man, it was so good to have that mirror held up to me um, to so that I had to examine some of the stereotypes that I had absorbed and so I could push back against them. What did you think, Sarah?
1: Yeah, it was that same kind of reckoning, the same sort of like, yeah, the same reckoning of all the things that I didn't know that I learned and thought myself too good to like, you know, think that I would ever think that way. Um, And then realize, oh, maybe I'm not as educated or as, as good at it as I thought, right? And thinking about how we often relegate, especially East Asian cultures to a time of antiquity and not realizing that they exist here today right now like there are women at the forefront of movements in japan right now like it is happening now right in terms of like you know sexual harassment in the workplace that's been super normalized um the you know kind of exceptionality that women have to perform in japan and that's something that's happening now right and that women today are contending with and not just something of our past that we like cleanse them of because they've been colonized and westernized and whatever um so that that was something that i kept thinking about was like i need to be aware of what's happening today in those countries because i'm so quick to write them off as like oh that was like the 1800s like Mm. doesn't i don't need to worry about it now but
0: Mm, interesting things happen now right yeah. Well, to that point, the next book was Kim ji Young, Born 1982, right? Born in 1982 means even younger than I am. That's a millennial. So older than you, maybe, but still not old. <laughs> so that was a, a fascinating book for me. What did you think? I'm actually going to ask
1: you what you thought about this one.
0: Oh, man. Yeah, I... I guess I'll just say one scene that I remember when I think of the book and think of the conversation was where this young, she's like in high school, I think. And she gets followed off of a bus and it is really, really scary. Like she's, you can just tell reading the book, like she's totally going to get sexually assaulted. It's the middle of the night. She's alone. This guy follows her. She manages to make it home safely and she comes in and like, bursts into tears tells her dad what happened and her dad is just like why were you out alone why what did you do wrong what did you say to him why did you encourage him and just how familiar that felt that and that that still just happens that's just one of the many scenes that really stuck with me after the book and and really this character the whole way through the book all of these traumatizing sexist things happen to her and then she's blamed for all of them, <laughs> for all of them, or when she suffers from the the impact of these things that happen to her, she's called crazy. She's called mentally unhealthy. like she's just blamed for all of the stuff that all the systemic stuff, garbage that has happened to her. So really great book, highly recommended for listeners to read. Okay, the next episode was a two part episode. It was gender constructs in Tonga. So what do you think of that one,
1: Sarah? I was thinking a lot about... Mm. This also bleeds into the other episode with Maori women and wahine, But I was thinking a lot about indigenous ideas of gender, right? And mm-hmm. how femininity and masculinity, once again, they just are, right? The masculine and the feminine just are. And... They're relegated to certain roles, but none of these have value in them, right? They're socializing women to be very compassionate and caretaking so that, you know, obviously because so many women give birth and so many women have children, that's just something that is a role that they have. And it's not assigned as like good or bad, right? Or as like, you know, lesser than or better than anything. It just is. And viewing the world with so much neutrality is kind of heartbreaking, that those ideologies don't exist anymore and that it's harder for us to look at them that way because we're so used to looking at things with a hierarchical structure. Like, it necessitates that some role has to be higher than another one. And that's just not true. Like, who said that was true? Nobody did. And so I was thinking a lot about that in terms of those two episodes with the tanga and also with Manawahine and how she speaks about you know it was it was hard for me because she speaks a lot about sorry I'm bleeding into the next episode but no go ahead yeah she speaks about like how women have central roles and men have central roles and they're not opposing each other and they're not in conflict with each other and they just are like nobody is chafing under the assignment of these roles they just understand that oh I have inherently more femininity so I'm going to help this group of people that seem to be majority feminine do these central roles of ritual versus someone who has more masculinity and is doing some other role. Right. And none of this is good or bad. It's just what it is. That's just how you were created. Right. So that's what I was thinking about.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was so interesting. So then the next place in our South Pacific region was hawaii and this was dr Miley arvin whom i just met in person i we had had this conversation online but i just actually ran into her on campus because i'm doing my phd at the university of utah right now and that's where she teaches and i ran into her and we recognized each other like oh finally we get to meet anyway she's fabulous um i loved this episode what did you think sarah
1: i once again this whole season was screaming at me how little i actually know about things And I think for me, what was particularly striking was how perceived race and gender mix to make colonialism such a strong force, right? I couldn't get it out of my head, the fact that like certain types of Hawaiians, native Hawaiians can inherit land versus other types of native Hawaiians just by like, from what I understood, it was similar to like a blood quantum type thing that we have in the United States, right? For just indigenous North Americans. And it was so like weird to me. And also the biraciality of it all, or I guess just multi-race, multi-ethnic identities that come out of colonialism and how that creates a really weirdly racialized system that we don't only see in Hawaii, but in all of latin america right there's like racial systems there too because of like colonizers um forcing themselves upon native women right Mm -hmm. and creating um this hierarchy and how deeply that works with gender um that's just what i was thinking about it was fascinating
0: Well, that's a perfect bridge to our next region because now we jump to Latin America and our next episode was female archetypes in Mexican heritage. I will just say here that I was so heartened, inspired, completely blown away by this man who is a dentist and just lives in Colorado. And he's like, well, in my free time, I study gender and theology. And he happens to be of, you know, Mexican heritage, I think on his mom's side. And I didn't quite know what he would bring to the episode, and I was just blown away and so grateful for amazing men allies who are doing, really doing the work of educating themselves and just showing up for women in these remarkable ways. So I was so impressed with him,
1: and I learned a ton from his research. What did you Absolutely. think? Absolutely. Me too, because I feel like those female archetypes that he talks about, La Llorona, um, oh my gosh, what's her name, Manchin, I think? La Malinche. La Malinche. And, I mean, of course, La, La María de Guadalupe, La Virgen de Guadalupe. You, I, I'm aware of these tropes, right? And I think about them a lot. And I, it was so validating to hear him voice those tropes and like systematize them right and think about here's how they came into being and Mm -hmm. you know maybe it's not my fault for feeling crazy (laughs) that you know a lot of Mexican women and you know Latina women are relegated to either for lack of a better word the whore right the Madonna or you know um, the crazy mom right that's those are the roles that we fit into yeah and it was so validating to hear him talk about it in such a way because it's kind of like research validates me feeling crazy (laughs) right (laughs) it sort of validates like there are patterns that we can think about and you're not crazy for having felt that these were the only roles you could have because it was created to make you feel that way right so i loved that episode insane
0: Yeah. (laughs) yeah so great Okay. Well, speaking of roles, the next one is Amelio Robles, the transgender soldier in the Mexican Revolution. And wow. I mean, we hear this and we know this, but it's so, at least maybe I just haven't known where to look in the historical record, but trans people have been around forever. And, but this was the first like primary source document that I have read about a trans experience. I learned so much from this.
1: I learned a lot. I I honestly hadn't heard of Amelio ever, right? In my life um, and it was so interesting to me, especially sort of the last bit of that episode where we learn about how Amelio's story was told and it was that he was relegated to Amelia, which is oh my god, so disrespectful. Like I was so so infuriated when i heard that and all i could think about was how dare you trample on this man's memory how dare you um and take away all that he was and all that he did just to have some like less nuanced take about womanhood it's one of the things that i've realized like turf's really are disrespectful about this type of thing um and it's that they take transgender men and fit them into their narratives of womanhood to show like women are just as powerful as men but it's like no that was a man you know just because they have a body that you can relate to doesn't mean that they're not a man doesn't mean that they're not allowed to live that identity and how patriarchy strips some of that because men will always see him as a woman Right. And women will always see him as a woman and how horrible that is. Right. Yeah. So that's what I was. I was so infuriated.
0: I know it was a plot twist at the end that I wasn't expecting either. I was like, wow, after all of that and it was so clear and even it was crazy too, even within his own lifetime, his own family, his own friends respected it. And that was really inspiring and like so beautiful and awesome. And then to have this historian retroactively change the story according to what she wanted i agree i was really surprised and really saddened by that absolutely okay the next episode was on reproductive rights in mexico and latin america more broadly with natalia calero
1: yeah this was actually a topic that i know more about so i was like yes i know these things yeah yeah (laughs) um (laughs) like finally i'm not like swirling around in a pool of so much incredible information um and it was kind of disheartening to me, especially in light of like Roe v. Wade and what's going on in the US in terms of reproductive rights um, and how this happens. And also like it's kind of reminded me of how fake this kind of high and mighty American feminism is, right? Because we're in America and we got our reproductive rights strict. And so many feminists that I know that are American will be so quick to talk about Latin American countries and how deeply the Catholic Church will strip these rights away. And yet Argentina was able to get protective rights earlier than we did. A lot of Latin American countries were able to get it earlier than we did and haven't had them stripped away. Right. So it reminded me a lot about how fake this um, sense of superiority is in terms of American feminism and how we talk about reproductive rights generally speaking right because it's so different the cultural values assigned to it are so different and people don't take that into account
0: yeah for sure that was my takeaway exactly too okay the next one from angel to office worker and so this talked about working women in mexico city around the like the early 20th century with susie porter that was so interesting too. That was like a, wow. When have I ever thought about secretaries in early 20th century Mexico? Never, ever. And you do this yes. deep dive.
1: It was so cool. Yes. Oh my gosh. And it reminded me, I mean, as I'm talking about it, reminded me of how much like class plays a role in patriarchy and feminism, right. And how women of various classes can use their standings and their jobs to really enact change. And in both good and bad ways, it reminded me of our a future episode that we talk about women in the third Reich. Right. And yeah. how secretaries then were also facilitating something that was so awful, yeah. so terrible for such a group of people. And in the same way, women in Mexico city are facilitating this change and how women in other roles Because, you know, if they weren't working-class women who were secretaries, I mean, they would have been considered middle-class, right? But they were women who had to work, right? And -hmm. class plays a huge role in that. Upper-class women can't use that same amount of power to enact change because they don't have to work. So they don't have the opportunity to do so. Mm -hmm. So it's had me thinking a lot about, like, class and how that allows some people to be empowered and others to not be.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this book was really about class. One thing that I got from this book that related to a lot of different episodes and different parts of the world was men's use of, like, I can afford to keep my wife at home. It's a status symbol to have a single income. And so kind of like men using women to stake their claim in the middle class but, yeah, the, 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 how patriarchy and classism really work together to oppress women in, in certain circumstances. So, Okay, the next one was the DR, the Dominican Republic, and Rafael Trujillo in the time of the butterflies. Boy, you just blew me away in this episode, Sarah. Do you want to <laughs> say one takeaway that you remember from your own episode?
1: Honestly, just resilience, 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 the resilience mm-hmm. of women. For me to even exist. That's all I think about is how resilient my grandmother must have been. For me to be alive and talking about her story and her resilience too. So that's all I think about.
0: That's beautiful. Okay, the next one was high-risk feminism in Colombia. Yeah, what did we think of this one? I was
1: deeply intrigued by this one. It was something that I had never thought about. In Colombia, or in terms of just how feminism, I mean, and obviously this just shows my own privilege, how feminism can put women at risk, right? Mm -hmm. Because in my very safe, very educated home, sure, I might, you know, piss off a few men here and there, but I'm not, you know, my life isn't at risk for fighting for this, right? But I'm grateful that it's not, but that isn't the case for so many women. And even, like, you know, so many women throughout history and today, right? That's not the case for a lot of women right now to be able to fight for feminism and still keep their lives.
0: It's true. Okay, the next one was immigration and interracial marriage. And this wasn't based on a book, but this was just a conversation with Brittany Romanello. I want to share one takeaway for me because this was so powerful. When she talked about how... White women are, like, nice to their Latina people that they knew, like, when they're their housekeepers or when they're they're in some sort of, like, supportive role in their life, but they are not able to see them as equals. Like, so to have their son marry a Latina woman suddenly exposes the racism and they're, like, really unwilling to confront that they're very uncomfortable with that equality. I was oh, it was so sad to me. It was like, that is so true and really disturbing and something that we really need to take a good look at. What do you think, Sarah?
1: No, definitely. That was like one of my major things was how hard it is to be seen as an equal when you're othered in a family, right? And also when you have no support system. You know, These women talking about how they had to form their own communities of like specifically like Mexican LDS women, Honduran LDS women, and in order to have a semblance of support of, you know, I'm home, right? Mm. Because it's so isolating. Yeah, that's definitely what I was... So striking, honestly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, shifting gears, we're now going to the series of books that we read and conversations on Indigenous America. And the first one was the stories of Native American boarding schools that was in Farina King's book, Returning Home. What did you think of that one,
1: Sarah? I, once again, the idea of how women can become pawns in a very hateful system is what I think about. So stick with me for a second. (laughs) Patriarchy does this really insidious thing, which is strip women of agency. And that can happen in a lot of ways. And one of the most insidious ways is that it strips women of their ability to do wrong. Right, period. And for Native American boarding schools to have existed, it necessitated the participation of women right, of nuns who ran the boarding schools, of women who advertised these in their towns, of women who spread the knowledge of these things. And patriarchy will have you believe that it was just men who did this. And it's so easy for us to want to believe that, right, because it it takes away the blame from us as women. But -hmm. that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. And it's also equally as infantilizing to think that women can do no wrong and that women can't participate in harmful systems. And so that's all, all I was thinking about was this idea of like, we can save them by introducing religion to them. And this wasn't just a thing that men wanted to do.
0: It was mm-hmm. a thing
1: that white Christian women also wanted to do. Right? Yeah. 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 So that's what I was thinking about.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting one to bring up then. There, there's a line that will stay in my mind forever from Farina King's book and It's this poem by the little boy who is being taken from his home to the boarding school and he's looking out the window as the bus goes and he's seeing all of his, he's seeing his home just kind of rush by through the window. And he talks about that he was, he tried to memorize all the rocks as they went by until he fell asleep from crying. And I just like, I I see that little boy in my mind all the time whenever I, think about resident schools which I do a lot because I'm studying it in my program but um, that those were real real people real little children and just how relatable that was and how tragic but and then the next one I think this one for me so this one was we are dancing for you Native Feminisms and the Revitalization of Women's Coming-of-Age Ceremonies by Kutcha Risling Baldi. This, for me, of the three seasons of all of the podcasts that we've done, was, the I think, the most devastating and tragic and also the most inspiring in the same episode, like the whipsaw of, like, I'm bawling my eyes out and absolutely gutted, and then I'm so inspired that I'm, like, it, it. I mean, that was quite a journey that we went on with Kacha. What did
1: you think? Absolutely. I kept thinking about. I mean, there's this one line that she says towards the end, uh, Doctor Kacha, and she goes, "You know, my daughter doesn't know a time when this didn't exist." And she's talking yeah. in response to like, you know, the um, menstrual celebration, right? Of when yep. a, a girl will start her menstrual cycle, and I thought. Like, how amazing that she's growing up knowing this is like, this is just what we do. Yep. And this is just how we celebrate women. Yep. And not having to think about, you know, like, how quickly it was stripped away from you. You know? It's, yep. I think about that all the time, you know? Yeah. My daughter doesn't know that we didn't do this
0: before, It's like right? what you said earlier, right, Sarah, where you're like, well, it's man-made, like, and so you can unmake it like the oppression yeah. of these people and i mean the horrible things happened that can never be really repaired but you can say like well they took this away well we will claim it back and that resilience of like okay so that went terribly wrong we're just going to we we can fix it or we can do something new and better now it was so inspiring absolutely
1: and it took 10 years and that's all yeah. it took yep
0: yep how amazing How amazing. Yeah, so awesome. Okay, the next one was called Reproduction on the Reservation by Brianna Theobald.
1: Yeah, I think when I was thinking about this one, I was kind of struck. It reminded me a lot of like American histories of reproduction and like the forced sterilization of Native women and how quickly women's bodies and particularly women's women of color and native women's bodies are experimented on because they're not human. And that's the other intersection of like race and gender, right? Like that would never happen to a white woman ever in the history of the U S that would never happen. Right. But it does happen for other women. And I just kept thinking about like, man, just how quickly other women are othered i don't know if that makes sense how women's bodies are so quickly relegated depending on what color they are and where they originated from to experiments and nothingness
0: it's yeah you're right it's crazy it's just like the overt like the egregiousness of the racism and sexism when you read things like that and you're like well there it is there it is and it's kind of in its most extreme and basic form Um, and that that's still an issue for missing and murdered indigenous women too is like really really important for people to know and confront that okay um moving on the next episodes were there was a two-part series on grandfather peyote and then two episodes on mama
1: ayahuasca what were your takeaways from those Oh, such powerful episodes. Also especially hearing about your experience with ayahuasca, which is insane. I kind of didn't know I mean I knew you were Mormon, but I didn't know that you had never like done anything mind altering. <laughs> you didn't know I was all. that Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> I knew yeah. about the no alcohol thing, that one I was aware of, but you know, Diet Coke, coffee. Those are things I'd only heard about. And I was like, wow, how like incredible for you to break down all those ideas and in in the pursuit of wanting to understand, right? So incredible. Yeah, and just so like revitalizing to think about how indigenous people think about plants and how they view them as guides through your psyche. And like, why wouldn't they view them that way? The earth is magnificent and incredible and amazing and sort of has always been here. And why wouldn't we think about plants as our guides? Mm. They know so much. They've been through so much. They've seen every single human atrocity ever. They've seen all of it, right? And so why wouldn't they be able to guide us through our own avenues of like healing and shame?
0: Mm.
1: Incredible.
0: I I love it. Well, and I'll just add my one big takeaway just as a reminder in case any listeners need to hear it, and that is that your body loves you. Your body is working. All the systems are working together every minute of every day when you're not aware of it. When you are aware of it, it's working together. And it is like fueled by this incredible life force that somehow also has to do with love. So love your body. Trust your body. <laughs> that was my big takeaway. That somehow a plant showed me, like you said. It's <laughs> the weirdest and craziest and coolest thing. <sighs> okay, next episode. And now we're getting into kind of like the miscellaneous section of Europe and just some other topics. And the next one was women in ancient Greece with the absolutely brilliant and charming Sue Blundell.
1: What did you do? Oh, yes. First of all, Sue's phenomenal like I, uh-huh. I just I love the way she speaks about anything
0: mm-hmm. um
1: and then also thinking about I had never like it was never put into context for me because I mean you know Lindsay and I both studied classics in school and it was never put into context to me that I was viewing ancient Greek women through a male lens like it never uh-huh. clicked for me that 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 was what was happening uh-huh. and when I think about it, every single woman that I know, you know, Circe is the main one that I can think of was written by Homer. That wasn't like a, you know, some woman inserting herself in a story that was a man inserting mm-hmm. his anxieties about women in a story. Right. Mm-hmm. And all we're viewing are men's anxieties about women throughout these very foundational myths I was gobsmacked when that connection was made for me. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, me too. Totally. That's a great takeaway. Okay. Next was, oh, my goodness. I got to interview Rianne Eisler. That was so amazing. And just even to have a conversation and where we are in our moment in time, too, that we're now in the, you know, this is 2023 and, Holocaust survivors are now aging to the point that many of them have passed away or are passing away. And so to speak with someone who remembers the Holocaust and remembers Kristallnacht in Austria and saw with her own eyes what happens when the Dominator model takes over your community. Um, It was just like such an honor to be able to speak with her. And then just this woman also, not only as a Holocaust survivor, not only as a scholar, but someone who is even now to this day, laboring to change things and to make the world a
1: better place. I was just so inspired by her. What did you think, Sarah? Absolutely. It sort of, once again, hammered home the idea for me that human experiences are so complex, right? Because one of the things that she briefly touched on is that no culture that we have today, that we've seen today, right? Is totally one dominator culture, totally Mm -hmm. one partnership culture, right? And to view that without attaching value, right? To see it as it is, because then you can see things objectively and destroy the things that make life harder for people. Yeah. And for her to talk so candidly about her own experiences with dominator culture it was just so powerful for me. Mm-hmm. And put into words things that I feel like so many women have seen in their lifetime of how dominator cultures either enter their home or enter, you know, their friend groups or enter their jobs, and they see how quickly it breaks down what they used to have right you know a lot of married women talk about like this shift in their husband while they were dating them he was super sweet and so kind and really into collaboration now that they're married suddenly something shifts and there's a domination happening and that's so heartbreaking and it also just made me so hopeful because if dominator cultures can take over in a matter of years what's to stop partnership cultures to take over afterwards and i feel like takeover is kind of like a rough term but you know what's what's stopping it from happening
0: yeah i love it i love it well that's what she's working toward and um yeah super inspiring okay and then i this was so interesting that just the timing worked out also to have rianne eisler's episode followed by This book on uh, the title is Hitler's Furies um, and these women who participated, it really more than they needed to, more than they were asked to in the killing fields um, of the Third Reich. And interviewing Wendy Lauer about that and reading the book was just, yeah, again, like something I never thought of and really kind of, you know blew me away, like in a bad way, to be honest, like it was, that was really, really hard to confront. What did you think?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of exactly what it is. It's what it's, you know, the heart, the beating heart of patriarchy is for violence to go unnoticed, right? And for patriarchy to remove violent agency from women allows it to go unnoticed. Um I kept thinking about, like, before you guys even mentioned it in the episode, I kept thinking about like the wives of plantation owners and the wives of Mm. enslavers and what a role they played in maintaining that and a role that they honestly did not have to play because their husbands did not value them as people. So why did you feel the need to participate in it? And it's, you know, sort of grasping at the straws of power that you do have. Yeah. Right. You know, when you don't have anything, the the most you can do is hurt somebody else, right? Because you don't have anything else. Yeah. And it was just so infuriating to me and brought to the forefront why I feel so uncomfortable in white feminism is that white feminism is unable to voice its own violent tendencies and unable to confront its own violent tendencies. And Without being able to confront it, you can't change it. And Mm -hmm. you can't do anything about it. So, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Second to last episode. This one was on patriarchy in art history with Danielle Stewart. Boy, this was so great too. It was on an article that was written, I think, in the 1970s. But I was so struck by this article and how relevant it still was. What did you think of this episode?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've never thought about it. I've never thought about women in art history. (laughs) It's just so horrible. You know, I had never thought about it. And I thought learning about the guerrilla girls, for example, Mm. or putting into perspective, like, what was it? 83% of all nudes are female.
0: Yep.
1: Wow. And also how odd. throughout history there's been such a fascination with women's bodies and just it always made me like very wary of like Pablo Picasso for example like I hated all his works with women because I was like you're just a creepy guy man you know (laughs) like that's just weird and so bad for it to be put into perspective that almost every prominent male artist that we've ever seen has done this in some shape or form Mm It's crazy. And it's crazy to me because art is such a powerful tool. So for art to also be under this patriarchal construct, terrifying, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and men making all the money from it too and determining taste and determining the fashion and determining what gets published and what gets picked up and who gets famous. And, oh, there was just so many, she did such a good job, I feel like in this episode, highlighting all of the different aspects of the system that disadvantaged women in the art world. And this, this brought up to me too, what comes up over and over and over again is, well, I mean, because the title of the article was, why have there been no great women artists, right? And so this thing that just keeps happening is the group in power prohibits another group from developing and then criticizes them for not being developed and and then says, see, you're not capable of doing this thing when they haven't even been able to practice or try or get any advantage or any traction. And then they're said like, oh, no, well, women can't do it or women aren't interested or, you know, because they've never been allowed to try. Um, So, yeah, she was just great at highlighting those systemic inequities so that we can have a more accurate conversation about it and see how it really is. Okay, last episode. So we just arrived to Lessons for White Allies, and this is from Letha Udayabanu, and she just shared so many down-to-earth and practical strategies and insights. I learned so much from her. What did you think of that,
1: Sarah? For the first part of it, or for a lot of it, I was like, "Man, did she like sneak into my therapy sessions? Like, how did she like know that this was something she needed to talk about?" And it's because a lot of what I deal with is like shame. As like a perfectionist and eldest daughter, and also growing up in a super religious community, shame is like it's somehow like enforced on you to feel and also not okay for you to feel ever, Mm. right? Because how could you be ashamed? You're a child of God, right? And also you're not worthy of God's love. So when she was talking about shame, I was like, how powerful is it for her to view it as something that's necessary? Because, I mean, you had asked this question about kind of like white tears and, you know, you're someone who feels so much and are so compassionate and transparent about how you feel. And that shame can sometimes be a little debilitating, right? Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking like that shame is so important because God forbid you don't feel anything. And then that shows you don't care. It shows it doesn't matter to you. It's not valuable to you. And I thought like just dealing with your shame and knowing that you experience shame is one, a good thing, especially like you know all white people who are listening to this, experiencing shame is good. It lets you know, it's one of your ways of your body telling you like, I care about this thing and I mm-hmm. care about doing this thing well. Mm-hmm. And then confronting your shame, even as, Amer- like, as Americans, we live in a society that looks down on feeling ashamed, right? And that we shouldn't feel shame and we shouldn't, you know, and it's like, but shame is so important because it lets you know that something has gone wrong, that mm-hmm. you've made a mistake and that you care enough to fix it. So feel your shame and know that you can overcome your shame. I don't believe in white fragility. Mm -hmm. White fragility doesn't exist because how dare you be fragile in the face of this? You created this. Mm -hmm. You can't be fragile, right? And you're Mm -hmm. not. (laughs) You aren't. And it's a lie that's been sold to you. You're not fragile. You know, you have the power and the strength to do this work, just like the rest of us do. Just like the rest of us have have had to be resilient. You know, you are also resilient. Yeah. So... I loved that episode. It was such a good way to close out the season, honestly.
0: Oh, good. I thought so, too. And I'm hoping that listeners really benefited from all of that wisdom that Letha shared. I know I really did, too. Like, being willing to confront the shame, like you said. And sometimes it's shame not about things that we personally did ourselves, but, like, ancestral shame, collective shame for things that, like, that you know, you might feel like I didn't do it. I never would have done that. And yet, in order for society to heal, somebody needs to step up and say, this happened. Reparations need to be made. And for me, my, you know, heartfelt belief is if I'm a part of the group that did that, well, let's say everybody who did it is dead. Well, then who's going to do it? Like that, I just see a lot of resistance from white people saying like well I didn't do it it's not it's therefore it's not my problem that's and that's true and that's fine to say like you didn't and you never would maybe you wouldn't but then who's going to fix it like we're left with what we're left with nobody I know has a time machine to go back in time and hold the people who did it accountable and so being able to say like I will step up I will listen I will do you know anything I can so that we can move forward and And what I appreciate so much was her saying, and you will make mistakes as you go, and being willing to say, like, that will be, what will that feel like? I don't know, it might be embarrassing. It might be incredibly painful to know that I have then, you know, perpetuated harm, or I have hurt feelings, or I have, you know, done these things that I didn't mean to do, and then, but if, what's the other alternative? Just not doing anything, and so we can't be willing. To say like you said i'm too fragile to handle my own mistakes or i'm too fragile to confront reality we have to say like yep i'm i'm up for it and i'll keep trying i will just keep trying i won't give up so i appreciated letha's pep talk <laughs> and like yeah. actual like real strategies for like here's how you do it so so helpful so anyway well wow we made it we got through the whole season Boy, I so appreciate you listening to all of these episodes, Sarah, and, again, contributing to your episode on the Dominican Republic. And this has just been a delight to relive all of these episodes and hear what you thought of them. Thank you so much for spending the time to do this.
1: I so appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so, so much for having me. I learned so much. Oh, my gosh. And I sent, like, at least half of these episodes to, like, 5 million people. Yeah, So... So good. It was so good. And I'm so glad that you had me back on here to just hash it out with you and discuss it. Awesome.
0: Well, thanks again, Sarah. And listeners, follow Sarah's example. Please send these episodes to 5 million people. Um, (laughs) And this is so exciting. We're now at the end of season three and about to start season four. We have some incredible episodes coming up in the next year and some really exciting announcements about videos on YouTube and new social media. So make sure you stay tuned. We'll be doing those announcements at the beginning of 2024. So make sure you join us for the launch of season four next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.